This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 23rd, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, our new intern, Alexa Billow, talks with Scott Osprey about a surprising change in a very regular weather pattern, the quasi-biennial oscillation. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. We cannot produce this podcast without the help of listeners like you. Become a member of AAAS, the world's largest multidisciplinary scientific membership organization and publisher of the science family of journals. Join before September 30th and receive 20% off your membership. Visit AAAS.org save20 to become a member today. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First, we have a story on how chickens may have gotten so plump. Chickens started out, or their ancestors were, quick little red jungle fowl. And these days, chickens are not so lithe. They've gotten a little bottom heavy. And it may be due to an edict from a pope a thousand years ago. Okay, Dave, what does a pope have to do with chickens? Well, we're talking about something called the Benedictine Reform that happened in the UK in the mid-10th century. And basically, there was a lot of fasting going on during this time. And this church edict basically said that during fast days, you could not eat meat from quadrupeds. And that was animals like sheep, goats, and other four-legged animals. So what that left, if you wanted to eat meat, was chickens. And fish. And fish. That happened. And then there's this gene that has been long associated with domesticated chickens, even though no one knows exactly what it does. And so the research here kind of makes this connection between the two things, right? Right. Well, there's this gene called TSHR. And in 2010, scientists identified it as possibly causing changes that would make chickens maybe plumper, make them lay eggs year round. And they thought it was really important for chicken domestication. But this new study suggests that this gene actually may have come into favor thousands of years after chickens were actually domesticated. So the evidence for this connection with the Pope and the gene is the timing. A thousand years ago, there was this edict and DNA evidence from chicken bones 
um, shows that there was a very definite timeline linking to this. What kind of evidence did they have? For evidence, the researchers gathered DNA from 80 domesticated chickens from 12 archaeological sites ranging anywhere from about 2,300 years ago all the way up into 18th century Greece. And what they found was that these changes in the TSHR gene don't occur very early, or the, the prominence of this variant doesn't occur very early, as we would expect if it was heavily associated with domestication, but really seems to gain prominence around a thousand years ago when we had this church edict. Do the researchers have an idea about how an edict might have caused this to happen? Well, the idea is as chickens came into favor as sort of this meat source, a lot more people were breeding them, and they were probably selecting for birds that were going to lay eggs many times a year because eggs would have also come into favor, but also for birds that were a lot heavier, plumper, meatier. So it's sort of this interesting example of how a human activity, in this case a human sort of religious activity, can have a profound effect on the evolution of an animal. Next up, we have a story on the appeal of tragedy. So, Dave, did you see Titanic in the theater? I did. You did? (laughs) I did. I watched it on DVD. And, of course, tragedy is much older than 1997. It's almost as old as entertainment if you think about Shakespeare's tragedies, other kinds of old, old stories. We watch it. I wouldn't say we enjoy it, but we can't quite look away. And the question the researchers are asking is, why? So a group that looked at all kinds of activities like dancing and singing that people do in a group tried to see if something similar was happening with sad, sappy movies. So Titanic, was that the test movie for this research, Dave? (laughs) That was not. uh, Unfortunately, it was a much more depressing movie (laughs) called Stuart, A Life Backwards. In a nutshell, this is a made-for-TV movie that portrays the experiences of a disabled homeless man who was sexually abused as a child struggles with lifelong drug use and imprisonment, and eventually kills himself by throwing himself in front of a train. So not a very uplifting movie, and apparently a lot of people that see it can't stop crying at the end. So this was sort of a good test case for the researchers to figure out, you know, do these types of movies increase our social bonding? What sort of impact do they have on us? both as individuals and and also as a group. As part of this experiment, they asked people to watch this movie and also to control movies, which you can describe for us. Right. The control movies are kind of uh, sound a little bit boring. Uh, They were kind of bland BBC documentaries. One was called The Museum of Life about a behind-the-scenes look at the Natural History Museum in London, also a series about Irish geology, so probably not evoking the same emotional response as Stuart Alive Backwards. These science movies are as boring <laughs> as we're portraying them. But anyway, um, so when they after they had people experience these various movies, what did they measure in terms of their biology or their feelings after this happened? Well, one thing they wanted to measure was sort of endorphins, and these are chemicals in the brain that are released that can lead to increased pain tolerance, but they also seem to help us form social bonds. Now, the team didn't measure endorphins directly. Instead, what they wanted to see is what was the pain tolerance of the participants. So the thing they did was they actually had, after everybody watched the movie, they had the volunteers pose in what's called a Roman chair position. Right. And this reminds me of something that you do in yoga, which is the chair pose where you're basically in a downhill skiers position, but you're just kind of hanging out there, putting a lot of 
stress on your quadriceps. And I think they have them lean against a wall here. And so the idea was that they what had a lower pain tolerance. Well, right. So, I mean, obviously, this is a position that causes pain right. the longer you keep it. And what they found is that people that had watched the depressing movie could hold that pose for about 18% longer than those who had watched the control movies. What does that mean about the experience for these people? Well, it's not a direct measure of endorphins, but it does suggest that possibly they are releasing more endorphins. The researchers also did surveys, and they found that the people that had watched the depressing movie felt much more sort of bonded to the people they had seen the movie with and the people who had watched sort of the less emotional uh, documentaries. No, not everyone responded to the drama in the same way. There were some holdouts. What do the researchers think is happening with them? Right. Well, not everybody cries during Titanic, and here <laughs> not uh, not everybody reacted the same way to the movie. In fact, about a third of the people became more sensitive <laughs> to pain <laughs> after they'd seen the depressing movie. So the researchers say, you know, the impact of these type of activities really sort of vary depending on the individual. But most people did react by crying and then possibly releasing endorphins. Does this suggest that there is a role for tragedy in our lives in terms of, you know, having a shared experience? Yeah, I think that's that's the idea here is that these particular types of experiences are sort of important, maybe even evolutionarily important. And that's why they seem to sort of have this impact on us, not just as individuals, but entire groups. Lastly, we have a story on genetic defects in our sixth sense. Not the I see dead people sixth sense. Uh, many consider our sixth sense to be proprioception. That's the ability to sense the position of our limbs in space. And the research we're going to talk about looks at what happens when this fails for you. But I'm getting a little ahead of things, so let's start with the initial mystery, Dave. Two patients with bizarre symptoms. Right. Well, two patients came to a clinic. One was a nine-year-old girl, and the other was a 19-year-old woman. And they had sort of a strange suite of physical symptoms, including hips, fingers, and feet that were bent at unusual angles. They had unusual curvatures of their spine, but perhaps most significantly, they had difficulty walking and they had an extreme lack of coordination. And they also couldn't feel objects against their skin. So it seemed like they were sort of missing a sense. Okay. So they go into a clinic, they have all these symptoms. What do the researchers do next? The researchers suspected that they both had a rare genetic condition. And lo and behold, when they sequenced their genomes, they found a catastrophic mutation in a gene called PZO2, which has been linked to the body's ability to perform coordinated movements, also linked to our sense of touch. But when it's been knocked out in mice, they've seen something. Right. When mice don't have this gene, the mice are dead. So it was really amazing to find people that didn't have the gene or had a very disruptive version of the gene that were still okay. And so that really allowed them to ask this question, well, what is this gene actually doing? When they tested various aspects of their disorder with this gene in mind, what did they find out about our proprioceptive abilities? They saw a lot of really unusual things with these two individuals. One is if they were blindfolded, they had a really hard time getting around. If the researchers sort of moved their joints up or down, you know, moved their limbs in certain directions, the patients actually couldn't tell which direction their limbs were being moved in unless they could actually see if they were blindfolded. They had no idea. The researchers, uh, you know, when one of the more interesting tests, the researchers actually brushed a very soft brush against their skin and they couldn't feel it. Or if they brushed it against the hairy part of their skin, what to most people would feel like a very pleasant, soft brushing sensation, felt very prickly to these people. So, you know, again, it all sort of added up to this picture that there was something 
weird going on with how they sort of sense the world. Now that we know that this gene has all these effects on us when it's not working, what does it mean for us who have a working copy? Well, even for those of us who have a working copy of this gene, there's probably a lot of variation out there in the general public. And the big question is, do those subtle variations affect our own individual perceptions? You know, if some of us are clumsier than others, could it be because we have a different version or maybe some small mutations in this PZO2 gene? So, you know, not just an extremely rare disorder, but actually something that could tell us a lot about how the rest of us sense the world. Okay, Dave, before we get to the wrap up here, you have a quiz question for me? I do, Sarah. Okay, go ahead. Okay, Sarah. The World Meteorological Organization just officially entered the longest lightning bolt ever measured into the record books. How long was it? 5 kilometers, 21 kilometers, 125 kilometers, or 321 kilometers? I'm going to say 21. You are wrong. Whoa. (laughs) It was actually 321 kilometers long. That's almost... 200 miles long for those of you non-metric people out there. It struck just south of Tulsa, Oklahoma and stretched all the way to the Texas border. Uh, A little embarrassing, but just tell everybody else where they can read the quiz. So we post the quiz every Monday on the site, and you can also find it on our Facebook page. All right. So what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how to unwrap an ancient scroll without touching it. Also a story about whether two new big advances in quantum teleportation will bring us any closer to Star Trek-like teleportation. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why the University of Tokyo is launching an investigation into anonymous claims of scientific fraud. Also a story about why the Spanish scientific community is pledging to become more transparent about animal research. So be sure to check out all these stories and the quiz on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. So we're going to talk a little bit about Blue Apron. For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Blue Apron believes not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients taste better and are better for you, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Blue Apron, in fact, has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S. And because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required per the recipes, they're reducing food waste. Cooking together builds strong family bonds. Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often. Some of the meals available in September include eggplant and chickpea tangine with islander pepper, tomato, and couscous, and summer udon noodle salad with cherry tomatoes, corn, and summer sweet pepper. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash science mag. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash science mag. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. The 
The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price, manufactured in the United States. An in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams for a sleep surface that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and free returns within the U.S. and Canada with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of the year. So try it out. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com science and use the offer code science. Terms and conditions apply. That's www.casper.com science. Now we have our new intern, Alexa Billo, talking about a surprising change in a once predictable weather pattern. In February of this year, one of the most regular phenomena in the atmosphere skipped a cycle. Every 22 to 36 months, descending eastward and westward wind jets high above the equator switch places. The quasi-biennial oscillation, or QBO, is normally so regular you can almost set your watch by it, but not this year. Here to tell us about this unprecedented event is Scott Osprey. Hi, Scott. Thanks for joining us. Hello there. First, can you give us some background about the QBO and why it's normally so regular? Well, the QBO, as you pointed out, is a phenomenon that occurs in the stratosphere above the equator. It's characterized by a series of westward and eastward winds that descend in time at about one kilometer per month. So these winds were discovered in the 1960s, so we have quite a long record of measurements around about 60 years. And the original balloon measurements started around about 1950. So what is the QBO? I said that it's characterized by these descending westward and eastward winds, but they're largely generated by waves that bubble up from the troposphere. Now, these waves come from rain or precipitation and thunderstorms. And as these waves bubble up from the underlying troposphere, they travel in different directions and at different speeds. And it just so happens that when the waves encounter winds traveling in a particular direction, they break down like waves on a beach. As they do so, they nudge the wind in a particular direction. They nudge it in such a way that other waves, which subsequently move up, they will also break down, but at a lower level. And this lower level also provides a nudging. And the net result is a slow descent in time of these different wind jets. The QBO affects winter weather as well as the North Atlantic hurricane season. Will this hurricane season or this winter be any different? That's a good question. To answer that, you've got to realize the nature of the forecasts, seasonal forecasting, not only of seasonal weather, but also of hurricanes. Unlike normal weather forecasts, seasonal forecasts are more of an art form, meaning that the information that is used from statistical correlations rather than from simulations within big computers. The link between hurricanes, Atlantic hurricanes, and the quasi-biennial oscillation is a statistical link. This link harks back to the early record of the QBO, and it was found from 1950s through to about 1980 that there seemed to be a relationship, a good relationship, between the QBO and the number of Atlantic hurricanes. However, since the 1980s, these links have become a bit more tenuous. So currently, our understanding of the links between the QBO and hurricanes is quite controversial. Some groups tend to think that there is a link, 
while others don't. However, having said that, most seasonal forecasts use the QBO in some shape or form to make their forecasts. What about winter storms? The link there is mostly actually with wintertime forecasts around Europe and Northern Europe. The way the statistical connections go, if there are westward winds in the tropical stratosphere, so the QBO winds are westward, blowing towards the west, then the wintertime weather over Northern Europe tends to be cooler and drier. Conversely, if the winds within the tropical stratosphere are blowing towards the east, then the seasonal weather over Northern Europe tends to be more wet, it tends to be more stormy. So these are statistical links, and you must understand that there are other drivers at work to affect seasonal climate. So given this statistical relationship, is it possible that this is going to affect the certainty of our long-term forecasts? Yes. Short answer, yes. The key thing here with the QBO malfunctioning, it can be described as a malfunction, I suppose, is that our confidence in forecasting the QBO took a hit because our forecasts of the QBO were actually wrong over the preceding months. Then our forecasts from those times to the end of the year, the seasonal forecasts, are also to a small extent affected as well. The likely impact of the disruption to the QBO is that our confidence in these seasonal forecasts has taken a bit of a hit. Why did the predictions fail? To understand that, I go back to how the QBO is maintained, what generates it in the real atmosphere. Now, as I said, waves from rain and thunderstorms in the tropics, they create these waves that originate in the tropics and they travel upwards and they force these QBO winds. So the type of disruption that we saw, we simply can't understand in terms of waves traveling straight up from these tropical regions. So the disruption can be best understood and was actually observed to be affected by beyond the tropics from actually waves originating from mid-latitudes. So rather than weather systems and waves occurring within the tropics, forcing the QBO or forcing a disruption, it was actually an external influence. Waves originating from weather systems at high latitudes, arching in and disrupting the QBO. So clearly it's difficult to say what's going to happen in the future as a result of this change. It adds more uncertainty, not less. But what's your gut feeling on whether other major patterns are going to be disrupted? Do you think that's likely to happen? I think we'll have a better idea, for instance, for this particular disruption. In a few months' time, we'll have a good idea about what impact, if any, it's had on our seasonal predictions and weather over northern Europe and southern Europe. In the context of upcoming weather in the next few months, we'll have a good idea about the links between the QBO disruption and extreme events in the coming months. Does one expect other disruptions elsewhere in the climate? Again, that's a really tough question. What we do know is that in the last few months, we've seen a rather large ENSO event take place. And we've also seen the numbers of Pacific tropical cyclones, a large number of those in the last few months. And also there have been droughts in the Western United States, and this has been linked with anomalously high sea surface temperatures in the Northeast Pacific. So these are quite unique conditions. Just how related they are to each other, we don't know. But we have a good idea that ENSO, the large El Nino event that we've seen recently, is implicated in the QBO disruption and is likely to have had an indirect role in the QBO disruption. Can you expand a little bit on how the recent El Nino effect influenced this change? So the role of El Nino is most likely to have been an indirect one. So as the QBO is thought to be largely driven by waves 
moving upward through the tropical stratosphere, the change that we saw cannot be understood in terms of those sorts of waves. And in a similar fashion, waves coming up because of ENSO or El Nino similarly are thought not to have a direct influence on this QBO disruption. However, El Nino has other influences, notably insofar as it changes the circulation in different parts of the tropics. So this change in circulation may be such as to promote large-scale waves moving from the high latitudes through to the tropics. So El Nino may have had an indirect role to play in the QBO disruptions by providing a bridge linking the mid-latitudes to the tropics. How likely is it that this disturbance in the QBO is due to climate change? Will climate change affect it in the future? It's a really tricky question. You've got to realize that this is a one-off event, or should I say this is the first time this event has occurred or been observed to occur. At this moment in time, we can't say anything about this particular event and its link with climate change. But we can answer a different type of question. Under climate change or a climate change scenario, is there a change in frequency of these types of events? In our particular study, we looked at a number of different climate models under present day conditions and under extreme climate change conditions. All but one of these models couldn't predict anything like this type of event that we've observed over the last few months. However, one particular model did. And what we saw in comparing simulations using that particular model over present day and in the future was a change in these types of events occurring so that there were more of these events occurring under extreme climate change conditions. That's not entirely satisfactory because those other models couldn't capture this event. So it's not robustly captured across models. And that's not a good position to be in. Scott, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Scott Osprey and colleagues write about the quasi-biennial oscillation in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.